Yesterday we did an introduction to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in particular. And if I may ask you, Basalana Kikupale Baleng, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Now, what I want to do today is going to be quite extensive. Tell your neighbor extensive and expansive. Tell them expensive and expansive, yeah. It's going to be a little, a lot of detail that we're going to cover. Uh, But I want to take time to do it. We'll do a little bit of pictures at the back to show you something so that you can understand what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, it's very important, Barcelona, to understand the importance of this place called Corinth. In fact, we are told that the book of Corinth is the longest book in the New Testament. There's no other book longer than the book of Corinth. And sometimes when we read letters, it's it's difficult for us to understand certain things that are said there because we, we really don't know the place where the message was addressed to. We don't understand the culture. And it's very interesting, as you'll see when you go through this, how Paul borrowed a lot from the culture in Corinth, even in his writings, to use those as analogies to convey spiritual truth. And we can learn from what Paul is doing in order for us to be able to convey truth. If you speak truth in a vacuum and you don't use a simile, people will not understand what you're talking about. It's always important to borrow from the culture and the history of any place because in that way, when you communicate that truth, people will understand you better. Are you with me, Bazalana, tonight? And so tonight what I want to do is bring you to Corinth. So look at your neighbor and say, welcome to Corinth. Let's have a picture of Corinth behind me. Uh, Corinth was a very, very important place, Bazalana, and you'll understand why Corinth is so important. And just to locate you, this is Africa here, all right? This is the north of Africa. We are somewhere down somewhere there, more South Africa. But this is, this is Africa. We have Kodimo, Algeria, Libya, Egypt. I'm just trying to give you an orientation. And then you have Spain there, Italy there, you have Romania there, Turkey there, and you have uh, uh, Israel there. And that's where Corinth is in terms of the location, right there. Can you, can you see the place? Are you able to see the place, ne? This is exactly where Corinth is. And you'll note when we talk about this part of Corinth, right there, the importance of that part. But that is where Corinth is. If you can just leave that on the screen there for a while. You'll understand why Corinth is so important. You'll understand why uh, Corinth was like it was in, in the day of Paul. It was one of the greatest Roman cities of the time. As you know, the Romans dominated the place. And there's five things that made this place, Corinth, to be prominent. Five things, all right? So you may want to write them down, all right? So these are very important. First of all, its setting. In, in other words, where it, was, where it was and the way it was structured geographically, okay? Corinth was very ideal 
for defense. Now, you may not think much about that living in our culture today. But in these days of Paul, uh, the location of a city was very important because there were a lot of wars that happened those days. So what you wanted was you wanted to protect your city. So its setting became very critical to being able to make sure that that happened. So there are two things about Corinth that are important, all right? It had a high location. And if we can have the second slide. There's a place in Corinth that was called Acro-Corinth, all right? That is it over there, okay? It's on a, it's on a high place. It's, it's on a high ground. If you came down, all the way down, that's where the actual city of Corinth was where they had built. But there was that place called Acro-Corinth. Somebody say Acro-Corinth. Tell your neighbor, don't, don't sleep on me now. You are learning. Don't, don't sleep on me. I must spit and kick the chest. I'm not doing that tonight. See ya, funda. Look at your neighbor and say, see ya, funda. All right. So, so in these days, a high location for a place was very important because it was better defensible. A city on a hill was much more defensible because it was very difficult when people came to attack you to have to climb up to attack you. Because if you are on a higher place, you can defend yourself better. So they, they call this place Acro-Corinth, which simply means the upper city of Corinth. All right? And, and, and it, was, it was founded here. So it was called Acro-Corinth because it was the upper part of the city of Corinth. So in the ancient world, you needed to have that location for it to be set up on a higher place. But the second thing that was important is that that place had to have a source of water. Because in times of attack, you retreat into the upper ground. Now, you know, you can live without food, but you can't live without water. So if you had a constant supply of good, clean water that could really be the thing that would help you. So they had Acrocorinth, though the city was at the base. And, and that it was because if they ever got attacked, if the attack came their way, they could run to the upper part of uh, Acrocorinth. And we are told that there was enough water there to almost supply people for almost three months or four months nonstop. And it could be able to really uh, help the population of this place. Are you there, Bazalan? So that was the first thing that was very important in terms of where Corinth was located. Now, there are two things that Acro-Corinth represented in this culture. The first one being physical safety. All right? As we said, you can, def you can defend yourself from a, a much better in a place that's on a higher ground. But also Corinth was known for its... Uh, mythical significance. There were a lot of beliefs and myths that were there. You know, all kinds of strange beliefs that were there. So, more, more acro-corinth, we are told that there were several temples that were built there, various temples that were built to the Greek gods, because Corinth is in Greece. In fact, when Paul arrived there, we are told by Bible historians that there were six temples that you could find on the way to Acro-Corinth. That tells you how, 
how mythical these people were, how spiritual they were. And for me then, it becomes very interesting that the church in Corinth seemed to be the most spiritual church that you could ever find. As I said yesterday, you know, there are certain things that on the one hand, they seem negative, but God is able to take those negativities and turn them into positive things. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So, you know, it had a lot of belief system. And so when Paul arrived, they say that. The historians themselves say as they excavated the place there in Acro Corinth, they found 26 sacred places that were devoted to various gods. And so you can understand why when people came into the church at Corinth, you know, some of them under the guise of thinking they would manifest wrong spirits. Because people in this place were very susceptible and very open to being influenced by spiritual forces. Are you there, Bazalan? Are you there, Bazalan? Oh, Bazalan, are you there, Bazalan? All right. The second factor, as we said, the first factor was that Acrocorinth, it being on a high place. The second factor that made Corinth important was its geography, where it was. If you can have the next slide, just to show you uh, where Corinth was, all right? Let's have the next slide. Now, you can see where Corinth is located right there. Now, I want you to remember this part over here, okay? This part over here. You, I want you to remember that because we're going to show you that and you'll be able to understand uh, why that is so important, right? The geography of Corinth made it to be a very prosperous place because as you see, there's water all around, Okay, and there is where Corinth is, right there at that point. This is mainland Corinth. This is uh, Peloponnese, which is the lower part of Corinth. Penopolis on the south, mainland uh, Greece, rather, on the north. And that's exactly where Corinth is located there, okay? So you'll understand why, as a city, it became the main center of trade in the ancient world. As you know, the main mode of transport, of transporting cargo in these days, and of moving from one land to another, was to sail through the ships. So where Corinth is located, it's almost like Dubai. You know, you know where Dubai is geographically, you know, it's, you have to pass there when you are either going to the west or to the east, and you, you, you kind of have to pass, even when you're going to the far north, you kind of pass there. So where the place is located became important. There's this smaller place that was called the, the Isthmus. Somebody say Isthmus. Say it again. Say it again. Say it again. So as we know, we've said Corinth is in Greece, but the city Corinth is located in that narrow space right there, okay, where it connects the mainland and Penopolis, as we have said. So if you wanted to go from here to there, you go through that. If you wanted to sail from here to there, okay, you want to go from this side to that side, you have to pass through that place. So it was really a perfect place, Barcelona, where it was located. So if you wanted to go, uh, even to travel through Corinth, this narrow piece of land, which is called the Isthmus, and the Isthmus is, or simply means a land bridge. Okay, so this was used as a land bridge. Are, are, you, are, you, are, you, are you all there tonight? Okay, so meaning this, therefore, whoever controlled this piece of land inside of Greece at this time, all right, 
controlled main parts. You could access Achaia, Macedonia, Epirus. You could all access all these places. And so on this place, there was a port, this side and that side. The two ports on both sides of Isthmus. And these became the busiest ports in the Roman world at that time. And I'm going to show you why. So, so on this one side of Corinth right here is what we have as the Gulf of Corinth. All right. And then this side is the Gulf of the Aegean Sea. All right. Are you with me? Yes. Hey, you're, you're concerning me. Look at your neighbor and say, you must wake up too. Uh, too uh. <laughs> now watch this. This portion here, from here to there, we are told that it was a distance of only 6.4 kilometers. Just this point here. That distance. 6.4 kilometers. Now you'll understand that as, 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 as we go along. And therefore, it became the primary point of traffic when people traveled, okay? Or when people wanted to sail the Mediterranean Sea, particularly if people came from this side and they wanted to go to Rome, which is somewhere that side, that became a very important part. That was very, very important. So for that reason, it became a place where where the ships would come and dock because we are told if they went around this place, if they were to go around Penapolis to sail the sea around and come that, that way, it took, it was a distance of about 320 kilometers. Let's show the next slide. I just want to show you. It was a distance of about 320 kilometers. And having to come around this place, because of the way the winds blow here, and the way the currents were, there were, there were a lot of uh, uh, shipwrecks that happened there. So, you know, and imagine you have this ship that has loaded all this cargo, and if you're going to risk over there, you're going to risk losing the cargo, even losing your life. So people would rather go and dock there, right? And there was, a, there was an actual path that was made there where the cargo could be dragged through this 6.4 kilometers to the other side. So what you could do, you could dock your ship there, offload the cargo and on the other side connect with another ship and move off to Rome because that's what what was so so this place became a very very interesting place are you still with me so far Bazala? so not only did this thing of 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 oh excuse me so so oh excuse me all right so this made therefore the, the this place to become a very very prosperous thing because people made sure they don't want to face up to the dangers of having to sail all the way around. I'd rather take this 6.4 kilometers. So, for that reason, it meant many people came here. It became the crossroads. It became the mixture of people, the mixture of cultures. People from everywhere, of every trade, they came there. I don't know how many of you have ever been near any place that have ports on them. There's a, there's a certain place that I go to every year. And uh, there's a port next to the hotel where they book me in at this place. But it's in South Africa. Okay. And uh, it's quite interesting because, you know, uh, the ships come and dock there. Now, you must remember, when the ships come in large numbers, you can't just pull your cargo through on the same day. You know, there's queues and queues and queues. So you have to dock there and you have to stay there. And when you stay in a place, you spend money, you, you interact because you have to, you're waiting in line for your turn to come. 
And so these, these, these sailors, you know, having sailed for months and months and months, all alone, without their families, without their children, without their wives, when they get a break and they come to a place like that, then we start to start. So I know in this place where I actually go to and stay there, I actually, I spoke to some of the leaders there. They say in that place, if they told me, the local told me, but in this place, you'll be surprised the people, the children who you find here. They are South African children, but they are children that uh, other nationalities came and had children with our ladies here. I mean, some people, when you look at them, are Mona Roy and Otswa Thailand. So, yeah, so, it's, 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 it's kind of places. So, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to paint Corinth for you. I'm trying to help you understand when Paul was addressing the issue of morality in the church, why was it so important? Because all those factors come into play when it comes to Corinth. Are you with me so far? Are you with me so far? So it became that crossroads where people would stand in line, have their cargo pulled. This meant, therefore, people spend a lot of time, okay, resulting in, therefore, this place having booming businesses, booming economy, whoever controlled the bridge, controlled the economy of grace. So this made Corinth a very popular place. So that's the second thing. It's, it's geographical location. Corinth became important. The third thing that made Corinth important is that it was the center of trade of and manufacturing. Very interesting that they had all kinds of things they manufactured. They even went to a point where they would actually deal in, in, in terms of tent making. You know, history tells us that when Paul was there, he supported his ministry through tent making. So being in Corinth. So, you know, it was a place that had a lot of trade and a lot of manufacturing. Now, now but then the fourth thing, it was, it was the place which was the home of what we call the Isthmian Games. The Isthmian Games. Now, this land bridge is called the Isthmus. So they call this game the Isthmian Games. Now, this is important, all right? In the Greek world, all right, you know that the Greek people are most prominent and pronounced for their athleticism. And therefore, it was in this place that then Greek world hosted their Olympic Games. Now you'll understand when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he uses the, the language of running and boxing. Are you there? Look at the number and say, true, true. So the first most important was the Olympic Games, but the second... And then the second most important games which came every other year was the Isthmian Games. So in Corinth, there, were, there was a lot of stadiums there. Okay? And we are told that people would run there. Athletics would happen. People would race there. And, uh, and, and Paul, actually, when he writes about athletes running, if you were to look, unfortunately, I didn't bring the picture. One of their stadia, actually, the way it was designed for athletics, it had actually running tracks in which people would run. And we are told that the athletes in these days, before they ran, they would take a vow not to cheat. So Paul, when he writes, he says, if you compete and you don't obey the rules, you'll be disqualified. They understood what he's talking about. Because he's borrowing from the culture of the day. And if I can ask some of you, Baruti, some of you, you better know what's going on in your city. So that when you preach, you can use those analogies. Are you understanding what I'm saying? 
And that's a very, very important thing. So there were many events that happened there. The Isthmian Games that happened in this place. Uh, uh, like running races, like uh, wrestling, uh, like boxing. Can we have First Corinthians chapter 9, please, on the board? Verse 24 and verse 25. All right. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 and verse 25. I want us to, to read it together. Let's read it together. Erin, know you not that they which do what? They, 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 they which do what? Yes, Erin, they run all, but only one receives the prize. Then Utaren, Aren, that you may obtain. Next verse. It says, let's go all the way. It says, every man that striveth, can we have it? Kikupa. Kikupa, can another translation into? King James. All right, here we are. Erin, everyone who competes in the games. Exercises what? In what? They, they do it to do what? To receive a... But we do it to receive what? Keep going. Verse 26. It says, therefore... Yeah? Watch that. And he does what? So the people knew boxing. So when he said I box, they, they used to go and watch boxing. So some of you who think using the World Cup soccer as a, as a sermon illustration, <laughs> if you don't use it, you've got to use that. Right now, Basalana, it's a, it's a perfect time right now to use the, the soccer World Cup in our sermons. You know, I mean, if you look at the, the heart that the Russians had, the never die attitude. I would have a sermon called the never die attitude of the Russians. Oh. Yeah. Or the disappointment of any exit. Lord have mercy on mercy. Hey. <laughs> but you see, in the communication of truth, you got to do that. And I, I want to say, on the other hand, it therefore becomes important for us when you read the Bible to dig into the history. See how much you enjoy, enjoy the book of Corinth. And we are just scratching the surface. We haven't even talked about other things. Now you understand these certain things that he said. And I'm going to come to some very, very exciting things in a short while. So there were all these games, wrestling, boxing, running of races, throwing of discus, throwing of the javelin, long jump, chariot races, and other things. So the fourth thing was the, the Isthmian Games. And the fifth thing was it was a destination for religious pilgrims. People went there for religious reasons. It said that in Paul's days there was about 36 religious sites or temples. And I'll just talk about three temples, but there are many temples that were there. The most famous temple is the temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite is the goddess of love. And she became synonymous with the city of Corinth. Now, the, 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 let's have that picture of Acro-Corinth. The temple of Aphrodite was at the top of Acro-Corinth. 
So to get there, it was a real long climb to go to that temple. But people could come there and they would take that long climb for one thing, to go and worship there. Because what happened at this temple of Aphrodite was quite interesting. This temple housed temple prostitutes who would engage in sexual activity in worship. We are told that at any given time, there would be a thousand temple prostitutes that were the area, male and female alike. <laughs> I wish you could have heard what I heard. Somebody just went, Jesus. <laughs> what a shock. So this prostitute would be involved in acts of sexual worship during the day. And at night they would go down to the city and get involved in sex trade at night in the city. Now, you can almost now think about the indictment that Paul leveled to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 5, when he was so surprised that the church there hadn't dealt with a guy who was involved in sexual misconduct. And Upambazalan, I mean, look at what they're doing. Paul says, I can't believe that what this guy is doing is, is not even what these heathens are doing. Or these unsaved people, maybe let me withdraw the weight. I'm withdrawn. What this guy is doing is worse than what these unsaved people are doing. He says, what he's doing, even unsaved people don't do. Oh, you want us to go to 1 Corinthians 5? I don't go to 1 Corinthians 5. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. I don't know the verse. So the guy said, the back will have to help me. I didn't write down the verse. 1 Corinthians 5, help me, confess. Verse 5. Okay. Let's have a, a, a translation that is better. 1 Corinthians 5, let's read from verse 1. 1 Corinthians 5 from verse 1. Okay. Utu Aren. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you. Utu Aren. And immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Even by Aphrodite's, what is done in that temple, it's nothing compared to what this person is doing. So even among the Gentiles, you, you can't even find people doing that. Utarin, that someone should have his father's, his father's wife. So the guy was cohabiting with his mother-in-law. I mean, his stepmother. Can you imagine? Cohabiting with his stepmother. So there was an age gap. age gap. Ben 10. Buang, buang. Yeah, yeah, and that's the one. So Ben 10, I call it today. How wily Patakir Ben 10. Then I'll turn the Ben 10. Huh? Yeah. Even the guys by our providers never say yet to Ben 10. In the church. And Paul is surprised. Next verse. He says, verse 2. You have become arrogant. You have not mourned instead. In other words, they were aware of what's happening, but they didn't deal with it. He says, so that the one who has done this deed should be removed from your midst. And unfortunately, today, 
People want to push us into corners to accept their standard of morality. Yes. People want to go and do stuff and impose it on leadership of the church. But see, we are bound by God's word, Barcelona. And the reason Paul is saying this, note Barcelona, the next verse, note what he says there. He said, for I on your part, though I'm absent in the body I'm, and not and present in the spirit, I've already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. Paul is saying, when you read it from verse 1, you were aware of this. You didn't deal with it. And even when you dealt with it, this guy didn't show repentance. Because see, Barcelona, the church, we must be restorative. Because all of us, we sin. Now, don't try to look holy now. You also... But the issue about God is that we should deal with our sin. And when we know it, we must deal with our sin. But we can't have people who want to bring their church down to their morality standard. We can't have that. We can't have that. We are bound by scripture, Bazalwan. We are bound by scripture. God is saying you can't allow that. Verse 4. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled together with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 5, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And we've never delivered anybody to Satan yet. Paul was radical. Marauta Aring at the end, so that his spirit may be saved. What people don't understand is if you continue sinning, unabated, unrepentant, it will cost you. So discipline is not to destroy anybody. And unfortunately, we are living in a world that doesn't want to teach people consequences of their wrongdoing. Yeah. There's consequences to wrong. If people continue in sin, Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, even I, after I have preached to others, I might be disqualified. And you can't blame us for that. We are just quoting what about. We are bound by the same thing. There's no way I can just keep it anyhow. There's no way. There's no way. So we would rather fall out of favor with people so that the day they stand before God, we are guilty of no man's blood. Look at your neighbor who's not sleeping and say, How? On a ben 10. That's why I sat like a How? 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 Barring. So they're not clapping. Or So basta. But about amen. Huh? Look around, check. Are they still sitting next to their benton? Yeah. <laughs> The second temple that was known in these days was the temple of Apollo. And, and because of the many temples, you know when Paul writes, he says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because, see, they understood. You know, when I talk about temple. But here's the interesting, another temple. Another temple, very in- in- interesting, was the temple called Asclepius. Let, let, me, let me spell it for you. Asclepius. A-S-K-L-E-P-I-O-U-S. Asclepius. 
Now, this temple was very interesting because it was such a large temple at the base of Acrocorinth somewhere and big enough to even have places where the sick would come. No, this temple was much more closer to the, the, the base of, yeah, the base, the base of the mountain. So people would come there and they would be like admitted there. But th- this temple was so huge that it had places for dining and, and so on. And people came mainly for healing because they believed that Asclepius was the god of healing. Remember, these people were very mis- mythical and mystical, and they worshipped many gods. So people would visit the temple, but nearby, watch this, this is very interesting. Nearby, there were shops that sold body parts made out of clay or terracotta. No, not actual body parts, but they had body parts made out of clay or terracotta. All parts. You can use your imagination. <laughs> That's why I didn't show the pictures of the <laughs> I avoided Corinth. <laughs> hey! I tell you, you have to be very strong to live right in Corinth. So, so people would go to these shops, Mama Lambazara, because these people were very religious, mystical, and mythical, they would buy these body parts. Whatever, whatever part of your body was sick, you would go and buy a replica of that part from the shop. And then they would come to this temple of Asclepius and offer it to the gods as a sacrifice. So Paul then uses this analogy of us as the body of Christ, being a body. Go to 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 12 and verse 26. First Corinthians 12, verse 12 and verse 26. For as the body is one and has many parts. You see that? And the members of that one body being many are one body also in Christ. Verse 26. The first part of verse 26. And whether one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. So they understood. One part yakula, the whole body yakula. And when one member is honored, all members are honored. And, and you can read again and again, Paul used those analogies. Are you with me, Bazalon? Yes. Are you with me? Yes. So, what is this now? Because of these five things we've talked about, Corinth, therefore, became a very important city, which we, 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 we can call a cosmopolitan city. Somebody say cosmopolitan. A cosmopolitan place is, is, is a place that has wealth, progressive, lots of people, but because of it being cosmopolitan, this place ended up having lots of problems. Lots of problems. With people coming from all over the world, really, but mostly all over the Roman world, this place had an opportunity to grow and Corinth had had a lot of growth. So people would come there for the opportunity for wealth. So they came being poor, stayed there, became rich. And the minute became rich, people became rich like that, it started drawing divisions among people. So the people of Corinth became people of class and divisions. 
And, and if you read the letters of Paul, he addresses the issues of division. And people would come to Corinth for many reasons, for trade, for religious worship. So it became this cosmopolitan city. So as I said, a cosmopolitan city is an international city. Watch this now, very important, that embraces many or different cultures. So Corinth prided itself, therefore, as a cosmopolitan city, Urmona, because we embrace all kinds of cultures, we are non-judgmental. And because we accept anybody from anywhere, we have no prejudice. So Corinth became a place, Ebitwang, Mechampon. Because it became the melting pot of all cultures. Therefore, this led Corinth to be a city where anything goes. It became a city where people, because you are in a cosmopolitan place far from home, waiting for your cargo to be taken to the other side. And you know, when you're all alone in a place where people come from everywhere, there are no standards. Because once you become a melting pot, culture disappears. Ethics disappear. And if nobody knows who you are, so what? However, interesting, it is in this melting pot, where the church there receives a commendation that no other church got. When it comes to their sensitivity to spiritual gifts. Paul says to them, you come behind in no gift. Which is this person? For me, therefore, it means, Mamela, this is important. No matter what your background is. No matter how far steeped you were in wrong. No matter how far gone you were. God can still use you. Somebody shout hallelujah in this house. It tells me therefore that the work of God thrives in places where there's a lot of darkness. And if there's anything we can learn is that we shouldn't run away from dark places. Because people from darkness somehow and I want to say this again. I've said it many times. I want to say it again. Much as they were in the temple doing what they were doing, worshiping God, buying these body parts, doing all of these things, on the one side, that's how far gone they were. But even that's how far gone they were, they developed a capacity for spirituality. If you can get those people, and, 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 and turn them to God, on the other side, they become the best Christians you can ever find. Ah, somebody shout hallelujah in the house. So that should give hope to us that God is not looking for people who are perfect. He's not looking for people who don't have a bad past. God's not looking for people who who are who look back and they cannot point. uh, They are are smaller than skeletons. 
God wants your small and your skeletons and your everything because God is a God who's able to turn people around. Do we have people that God has turned around in this place and changed their lives? Yeah. All it means that God knows how to work with us. No matter what our background is. Can I hear an amen in the house? Can I hear an amen in the house? I want, I want to close. Hey, Serious, I'm left with 10 minutes. It's going to ring a Get 10 minutes. Bishop, you see these people in grace. one I want to leave you Barcelona, with these 11 things quickly. That we learn from, with all that background, we learn what God says to you when it comes to spiritual gifts. Twelve principles that relate to God's design for you when it comes to spiritual gifts. All right? Eleven, sorry, eleven principles. Number one, every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. Usually it's more than one. It doesn't matter if you went to the temple of Apophroditus or Aclepius or Apollo. It doesn't matter where you went. When God finds you and changes you and fills you with the Holy Spirit, you have at least one gift. Yeah. We got to really understand what the grace of God is about. And embrace the grace of God. God embraces us what and all. And God is not ashamed to be called our God. Hallelujah. Jesus is not ashamed to be called our Savior. He says, I didn't come for those burning sharp. Can I hear an amen? Yeah. He says, I didn't come for those who are perfect. Those who are perfect, they don't need help. Who used to go up to the temple and go down to the, to the streets at night. It doesn't matter how wrong you are. God is there to change your life and transform your life. Hallelujah. So now that God has found you. Yeah. Turned you around. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Do we have people about to join Kamaria Jesso here tonight? Woo! Isn't it amazing that we who used to go to these temples, we who used to hang around these temples, now we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Now we are the people that God is using. We are the ones that are used as instruments and vessels. We were once instruments of evil. We were once those whose bodies were used for evil things. But now God uses our body for good things in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. It's a blessing. Somebody say it's a blessing. Tell your neighbor, neighbor, it's a blessing. Isn't it a blessing, Basanana? We who used to be filled with demonic powers and they used to speak through us, now we are filled with the power from the Most High God. Instead of demons speaking through us, it is the Holy Ghost that speaks through us now. It's a blessing. I said it's a blessing. I said it's a blessing. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. Hallelujah. 
It says that in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each person the manifestation of the Spirit is given. It says in verse 11, to one is given by the Spirit. So these spiritual gifts are not limited to a subgroup of believers. They're distributed to all spirit-filled men, women, and children. Number two, many believers have evidently received more than one spiritual gift. And these gifts are there, and I'm going to show you towards the end of the week, that to equip you for your God-given responsibility. Oftentimes we think about spiritual gifts only in the church. But the question can, should be asked, can these spiritual gifts work even when I'm a doctor at a hospital? Can these spiritual gifts work in my life as an accountant? And the answer is a resounding yes. You have to come back to find out. Number three. Spiritual gifts are imparted at the moment of being filled with the Spirit. However, watch this now. They can lie undiscovered and dormant for a long time. It is as you, like I was saying yesterday, as you open up to the move of the Spirit and you learn to yield to the flow of the Spirit, that these gifts, like anything, can develop over time. And maybe they won't develop is kind of misleading. You can learn to yield better to the flow of the Spirit. You find that as a Christian, you discover in the process of your serving that which God has laid in your life. If you are sitting passively, you're not going to see, you're not going to learn. Number four, spiritual gifts can be abused and neglected. This is what we see in the Corinthian church. These people who were highly gifted, but there was an abuse of gifts that people would just stand erratically in church and give a word in tongues. Never And like I said yesterday, let's not be turned away by the pipeying people. We must rather tweet all of us and say, hashtag pipei must fall. <laughs> but we need spiritual gifts. God would otherwise not give them. But sometimes they're neglected where we can just allow our services to be like an organized, dry, legalistic thing where there's no move of God, no touch of God. On the other hand, we can be so extreme that every day we want to swing on the chandelier of gifts every day. Some people really think when gifts are at operations, you've got to walk on the ceiling. Or hang from the chandelier. Or better still, 
Use doom. <laughs> so these are the extremes. But Basalama, we shouldn't allow any side of the two extreme sides to be what we allow. We should use the spiritual gifts as they are needed. Hallelujah. I said hallelujah. Number five. Spiritual gifts are not the same as the fruit of the spirit. Fruit of the spirit are produced from within. Spiritual gifts are imparted from without. Spiritual fruit relate to Christ-like character. Gifts of the spirit relate to Christian service. Therefore, fruit of the spirit are a measure of spirituality. Gifts of the spirit is just being gifted. It doesn't talk about spirituality. You miss that. You miss that. So it means somebody can operate in the gifts of the spirit and be the most carnal person you ever met. And that's what Paul was addressing in Corinth. Kiyo Benten. He's in the church, Yako Corinth. So if you are somebody who just gets taken by gifts in jail, how wanna power Wamat? You have a chance of having a Ben 10 as your pastor. Or you, you stand a chance of being a Ben 10 pastor. <laughs> Gifts of the Spirit are not necessarily a sign of maturity, it's fruit of the Spirit. Are you there? Are you there? Are you there? Number six. Gifts of the spirit are not natural talents. It's not natural abilities that we got from birth. They belong exclusively to believers in Christ Jesus. It is true that sometimes gifts of the spirit may coincide with our natural endowment but they transcend our natural abilities. Why? Because when spiritual gifts are in manifestation, they add the supernatural dimension. Wow. Of course, God gives natural talent, we understand. However, when God gives gifts of the spirit, these are more supernatural. However, in the same token, by the same token, they need to also be developed and used according to their purpose for the glory of God. Number seven. Gifts of the Spirit, though all Christians operate in them, and this is a session I'm doing, Levaruti. There are those that are also there to equip somebody in the office in which they are called. If you are called into the office of apostle, there are certain gifts of the spirit that become definitive of your office. Important. Though all of us can operate in gifts of the spirit, the measure of those gifts in terms of intensity and power and anointing differs depending on whether one is called or not. 
There's always differences of intensity and power when these gifts operate in a calling. I've operated in the gifts of tongues and interpretation and other gifts I'll talk about. But I found in me operating in the gifts of tongues and interpretation, I don't want to go ahead of myself, there's a much stronger anointing on my life when I do so than a lay person operating in the same. And that as it has happened in the case where I've operated in those gifts, it wasn't just the tongues and interpretations interweaved into that was gifts of healings, working of miracles, sometimes descending of spirits and all kinds of things. And that there was a much stronger anointing as I operated than when a lay person operates in them. And you find them operating in tongues and interpretation, it's only limited to it being encouraging and exhorting people. But in my case, sometimes it's been about telling people's destinies, pronouncing them healed through the same, through the same thing. So there's different intensities. Am I, am I, am I, am I lacking you? I'm not losing you, am I? Look at your neighbor and say, you, you look like, you look like, you look like uh, you are not being lost, of course. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's see, Victoria. All right. Are you, are you with me so far? Yeah. If you didn't understand that last part, keep on coming back. You'll understand it more. Okay, because I'm going to explore it some more. All right. What number are we on? Yeah. Number eight. These gifts, as we said yesterday, it's the word charisma or charismata. Literally means grace gift. Watch this. These gifts, therefore, are sovereignly given by the Holy Spirit. Somebody say sovereign. sovereign. For that reason, gifts of the Spirit are no basis for boasting. Gifts of the Spirit should also not be a basis for envy. Did say amen ka boasting envy la tola ka re. Se bonang ka re ke matata da. Mamela mbasalam. Every member of the body of Christ has a special place and purpose. And whatever God graces you with, it is in line with what God wants you to do in his kingdom. Whether more or less prominent in the eyes of men, God himself is sovereign in doing this. What people don't understand is with every gift God gives, God demands of everyone faithfulness. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 2. It is required of every steward for a man to be found faithful. And if you are not faithfully doing what we are called, we will receive the rebuke that Paul gave Timothy or the exhortation. In 2 Timothy 1.6, when he says to them, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. Do the work of an evangelist. Now watch this, Basalam. It's very important for us to be very careful to want more because whatever God gives you, he doesn't give it to you to pack in your life. And I'm noticing now, a few years ago, I actually almost got in trouble for not operating in certain gifts. And one pastor who's here, came and spoke to me in private about it because God had shown them that. I really got in trouble. And when I say God in trouble, to whom much is given, much is required. 
And James warns very strictly by the same token that not, not many of us should run to want to become masters and teachers. For those who are masters and teachers will be judged with greater strictness. What he's actually saying is that the level of assignment that you are given goes with the level of higher judgment you're going to get. So whatever, God, whatever gift God gives, he expects you to be faithful. Faithful in it being used, faithful in how you carry yourself when that gift is in operation. Faithful in walking in a presence of God that will predispose you to be the candidate that God will use every time. I had got to a place where I was no longer yielding to the spirit of God in certain areas of my calling. And I got into trouble physically with sickness and disease. It wasn't a matter of Satan attacking. It was that when you step off into disobedience, you open up yourself to certain things. So don't run to want to have all these things because if you're going to have all nine of them, hmm? so it is God who decides what he gives to who. So we shouldn't be envious. See, sometimes you look at somebody who has them and say, oh, I wish I was like them. Do you know that? You don't know the amount of judgment there, you know? You know, I just watched something. I heard it being referred to recently on radio, and I was very curious to watch it. And you know, you know, Serena Williams is playing now at the at the at Wimbledon. I know some of you don't know. Look at your name and say, "Tua, Tua." I'm trying to be like Paul. I'm trying to be like Paul. Now, let me just be very clear. When I talk about people, it doesn't mean I'm endorsing everything they're doing. You understand me? I'm not necessarily endorsing everything that people do. But there are certain principles that, much as I don't agree with certain things, certain principles are quite interesting. And uh, in a recent interview, after she won her third match, I think, they were interviewing her, and one of the journalists asked her a very brilliant question and said, you know, Serena, we, are, we know now that everybody who comes and competes with you competes at another level. And I'm paraphrasing, uh, you know, the question they asked her. He said, how do you feel about that? He said, well, uh, at least I'm glad that people are starting to admit that. Because everybody who plays me leaves their heart on the tennis court. They play their hearts out. Because everybody who plays me raises their level 10 notches because it's me. Now, there's two sides to that. Because one generalist said, and forgive the language, he says, probably it sucks to be you. She says, no, I'm, I've gotten used to it. Because I've learned that everybody who comes, even if I've watched their videos before, they never even play like they play in those videos, they play different. She said, now that they play me at another level, I've had to learn how to take my game to another level. And, I mean, you want to be Serena Williams, right? Right? But being here means everybody who plays with you is going to go for the jugular. Anybody 
somebody who can, whether you have come from an injury, whether you have just come from motherhood, it doesn't matter what you have gone through. If they beat you, it's a trophy. I learned something from that. I learned something. So, you see, you, you, you shouldn't complain when much has been endowed to you. That's the level you are at. You, you just have... There are certain things you have to get used to them. Get used to who you, you are not liked. Get used to the fact that they hate you. Just get used to the fact that they're trying to bring you down. Just, just get... But, but, but don't just get used to it. Just play at another level where now so that you come up on top. Can I hear a shout in the house, somebody? Yeah. And that's the principle. Whatever God gives you, if he endows you with more, he's going to require of more. So get used to the fact that what other people get away with, God's not going to let you. Other people can get away with being nasty and unforgiving and bitter because God's not going to let that your level doesn't allow that oh, can I preach in this house right now I said can I preach in this house right now I said can I preach in this house right now see there are certain things when you are at certain levels of operation they may not be detrimental for another person but when are at your level they are detrimental for you I used an illustration some few months ago mobile routing and I want to repeat it. I had an interesting story of one flight that took off I think from our airport here and the technicians had made a mistake they didn't lay close the fuel the fuel chamber. They didn't replace the cap. As it was taxiing before it took off somebody realized that the fuel cap was not closed and they were able to stop that plane before taking off. So they asked one of the technicians, they said, had it taken off with an open fuel tank, what would have happened? He said, in a few minutes of being airborne, it would have exploded into flames. Isn't it funny? Whilst it was still on the ground, it could still be driven. That's the level. Yeah, once it's at that level, it can, it can violate certain rules and it's not detrimental. But once God begins to take you to another level, you can afford to play at that level. You've got to get rid of the things of childhood because it will destroy you. Yeah. And this is what many people haven't learned about growing in God. There are things you have to would you, would you close that from your life? You can't look at the other and say, why are it a sober user? You don't know they're still grounded to the tarmac. They're still parked on the tarmac, but you are not parked in the tarmac. You are flying high in Jesus Christ and doing what God has called you to do. Yeah. 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 Oh, Jesus. Let's close. Let's close. I almost said, sit down. I won't say that. Number 10. Number 9. I said charisma means grace gifts. Kiona 9. Oh, okay. Sorry. Number 9. Some spiritual gifts are more desirable in the church 
than others because they result in greater edification of the body. So Paul, and we'll see it as we read, he said, desire the best gift. What's the best gift? The most applicable. No, it's not prophecy. You, 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 you almost got it. But the best gift is what is applicable at that time. That's the best gift. If I need a word of knowledge and then you prophesy over me, it doesn't help at all. Or you, you, you lay hands and pray for a miracle, you're not helping me. I just need a word of knowledge. Are we together now? Number 10. Gifts of the Spirit are God's spiritual equipment for effective service. I love this. For effective service. And for the edification of the body of Christ. They are not bestowed for self. You the one upon whom gifts are endowed, upon whom the gifts are imparted, you are not necessarily the recipient of those gifts. But the profit of what God has placed on your life is for others. You are simply an instrument. An instrument doesn't serenade itself. And so these gifts are given to you for others and for the glory of Jesus. And number 11 and finally. The high mobilization of spiritual gifts was the key of rapid multiplication in the church of the New Testament. That was the key. That was the key. These gifts, the high mobilization of spiritual gifts was the key to the rapid multiplication of the church of the New Testament. If we really want to see the church grow and multiply, we need to log in into these gifts. Hallelujah. Put your pens away and your notebooks away. You can finish writing. And when you are done, can you look up at me? And I want to make some closing statements, closing remarks. And I'm going to close in prayer tonight. I won't, I won't let you go out at half past nine like yesterday. Marlona Lancaza, I'll complain me. This is, this is, you know, I just wanted to decode to you what we are going through now. Because in our leadership meeting today, my bishop and Dr. Matole said something to me that really resonated in my heart. I'm not saying this out of pride, nor am I saying this out of saying we are better than anybody else. But I'm saying this because what I'm looking at and what's happening here is what some of us saw back in the 80s. Carefully. And if you need to leave, please don't leave now. It's not the time to leave. I'm going to close in a short while. God is stirring something in our hearts, all of us, Bazalan. Frank Damasio, when he speaks about a renewal 
or what Pastor Ray calls a spiritual visitation or what some of you call a revival. There are certain signs of that. You know, Jesus, in John chapter 4, the reason he was so upset with his disciples in John 4 is that when he was having a conversation with that woman at the well, his disciples were so oblivious to the work of the Holy Spirit happening at that time. They couldn't see that this woman was hungry for God, but that Samaria was just on the verge of coming to Christ in their droves. Samaritans. But their preconceived ideas and prejudices blinded them to the historical, spiritual moment that they were in. They were not aware of the Kairos moment where a spiritual divine encounter that is on God's clock and God's timing is happening and unfolding. Their prejudice and evil perceptions made them to walk away from what was going on and rather distract themselves by going to go buy food. And when they come back, Jesus says to them, don't you say that when you look at the harvest, in four months' time, we're going to have a harvest. He says, look, the fields are ready for harvest. That one encounter, Bazalana, that Jesus had with the woman at the well, not only did it change her life, this woman went into the, into the city, brought everybody out. And it's not a mistake that the first other city outside of Jerusalem that was visited after the day of Pentecost when persecution came was Samaria. And it was in Samaria where Philip preached. It was in Samaria where amazing things happened. It was in Samaria where the next people who got filled with the Holy Spirit was in Samaria. In Acts chapter 4, they were filled with the Spirit, but it was the same crowd that was refilled. In Samaria, it was outside Jewish territory. So what happened with Jesus was a precursor, a prelude, an introduction, a doorway to a mighty move coming. But the people who were at the verge of it when the door opened couldn't see. They couldn't see because they had no spiritual perception whatsoever. They couldn't connect to the wavelength of heaven. So this is what I'm saying, Barcelon. As I look around at all of you, and with all the people streaming, I'm seeing something I saw before. Something that over years waned and never happened again. But now it's happening. And I'm not going to be like the disciples. I'm not going to be oblivious to the signs of the outpouring. Amen. 
Your hunger and your thirst is a God thing. This is a precursor, a prelude to something bigger that's coming. The good thing with this one, and I see it here, I see it in Ghana, I see it in other parts of the world, everywhere I see it. I was telling them, I look at what Bishop Doug's doing, see the same thing. I look at what Bishop Nyati's doing, I see the same thing. I look at our pastors here in their churches, see the same thing. What's happening? This is what's happening. Just like in farming, when we expect a great harvest, in preparation of the rain of heaven, a farmer tills the ground, a farmer removes all the weeds, and a farmer plants. These teachings that we're doing, we are throwing seeds again and again and again. That when the rain of the Spirit begins to fall on us, When the move of God happens, our spirituality is not going to be based on sensation. It's going to be based on a solid foundation of the word of the living God. And as God begins to move, this move of God and this revival will be a sustained one. Because it's built on the solid foundation of the word of the living God. But then something was said in the meeting that I thought is worth repeating. When you look in the charismatic movement, our founding fathers, many of them, have passed. And the things that they preached seem to have gotten lost in the process. And even as the so-called charismatic church is growing, There are people that when you look at what they do, they don't represent charismatism at all. In doctrine, in the systems that they are founded on, in the way they carry themselves. So even as we are growing as charismatic churches, the doctrines upon which we are founded like what we are teaching today are not taught anymore. It looks like God is raising Men and women everywhere to teach these things once more. Because I'm here to tell you, there's a second wave that's on the way. Yeah. When I looked at you yesterday, I, it, it marked me. On a Monday night, very cold. Here's people, all ages, hungry, thirsty. Yesterday we had about 1,800 and something people who were streaming outside. This is not the churches, Saron. This is just people from around the world. Streaming. Ah! You don't see that every day. This is what I want to say. God is preparing us all for a mighty and a powerful move of God. Watch out. God's going to use you in ways that you will never be able to follow. But you see, even as God uses us, we will be orderly. 
We know how to behave in the house of God. We will not be arrogant. We will not be haughty. We will not merchandise the anointing. We will not play around with the anointing. We will plant churches. We will grow. We will go into communities and make them different. And I'm saying that over your life. That's what God's about to do in your life. Yeah. And we're going to see children as, they, as young as the age of 10 stand up and be used by God in gifts of the Spirit. We'll see it. We'll see it. We'll see it. We'll see young girls stand up and become mighty evangelists for God. We'll see it. We'll see it. We'll be in services where the glory of God will fill the whole house. And the Holy Spirit will divinely orchestrate a spirit-led service. Where we'll see the gifts of the Spirit operate and manifest like never before. And the shame of our past. The shame of what people have brought us into. That's going to be wiped away by the things that God is about to do. And those who are cynics are going to wake up to the reality that God is alive among us. God's going to begin to do it again. You watch out. God's going to begin to do it again. And when God begins to do it again, we're not going to point at ourselves. We're going to point to him and say, glory to God forever and forever. I want to see it. And God is raising some of us to be those who will pioneer and plant the very seeds that our forefathers in faith have planted. And God is working in your hearts to attract you and create a hunger, an insatiable appetite like never before. I say people here have traveled from far. People from Limpopo, from Bloemfontein, from Tulamahashi. Hey, how do you have people come from so far? It can only be God. 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 Even as I stand here, I sense that presence filling our lives like never before. Here's what I see. The shame of the past. God, we've been through years of shame. That we were even hauled before commissions and investigated. The shame of our past will be done away with. God's bringing the church to a place where we'll be organized, we'll do things well, but at the same time, we'll be spiritual too. We won't shy away from the move of God. Mara, we're not going to do strange things that will turn people away. I hear the Lord say, be ready. Be ready. For the rain of heaven is about to fall. Rain in proportions that you have never seen before. Rain that will not only come in drops, but it will come in showers. Rain that will saturate every life, saturate every area in your life. Rain that cannot be stopped. Rain that cannot be contained. 
Rain that will touch not just the lives of people, but will touch the nation. Rain that will flow into all other aspects of society. And a society that will wake up to the reality of God. Yes, I hear the Spirit of the Lord say, once more my houses, the church, will become a place of hope again. Instead of people looking at the church, mocking and scoffing, once more they will turn to the church and see it as a place of hope. Yes, they will come with their diseases. They will come with their incurable diseases. They will come bound by demonic powers. They will come feeling hopeless, listless, downtrodden. And they will come to the place because it will be a beacon of hope and a lighthouse. And as they walk in among you, even as they walk through the gate, the presence of the Lord will descend and come upon them. And even as they walk into the church, the glory of the Lord will envelope them. And even in that day, as the glory of the Lord envelopes them, no one will stand and take glory to themselves. For all my, my people, all my men and my women will be focusing on God and God alone. And everybody will give glory and honor to God, the one who deserves it. And as my word says, when you lift me up, Jesus said, I will draw all men to myself. And as we lift him up, we will see things happen that are way beyond even what we have prayed for. For the prayers that we have prayed, said the Lord, for many years. And the things you've said for many years and the hunger you've had for many years has come up as a memorial before my throne. This is a time for me to respond as God. This is a time for me to pour out my spirit like never before. This is a time for me to stand up and do things for my bride. This is the time for me to fill my places with the anointing and power. This is the time again where I'll stand up and roar, says the Lord. And the world will know that there's a God who is a consuming fire. There's a God who is strong and mighty. There's a God who's able to roar, a God who's able to release, a God who's able to deliver, a God who's able to heal. There's a God who speaks. There's a God who sees. There's a God who solves. There's a God who renews. There's a God who binds. There's a God who's able to bring broken pieces again. And the world again will know and the shame will be gone. And a day of rejoicing will be there in my house. And so I hear the Lord say, rejoice. Rejoice today. Rejoice, Zion. Be glad in the Lord your God. For the Lord is great among you. Pray in the Holy Ghost for a while. Pray in the Holy Ghost. Shekata rabba rabba babo